The new evangelization is the work of the whole church, priests and bishops, couples and families, and ordinary citizens working to live the gospel in the public square. Today we'll be talking about different facets of the new evangelization with His Excellency, the Most Reverend Joseph Kurtz, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Louisville, Kentucky. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, Professor of Catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a professor of catechetics here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking about different facets of the new evangelization. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. We're pleased to welcome our special guest, Archbishop Joseph Kurtz who is the fourth Archbishop and ninth Bishop of the Archdiocese of Louisville. Archbishop Kurtz previously served for eight years as the Bishop of Knoxville, Tennessee, and for 27 years as a priest of the Diocese of Allentown, Pennsylvania. From 2013 to 2016, he served as the President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And in 2017, the Bishops of the United States elected Archbishop Kurtz as the Chairman of the Committee for Religious Liberty, Welcome, Archbishop Kurtz. Bob, thank you. So good to be with you. Oh, it's great with, to be with all of you, actually. No, it's thank wonderful you. to have you thank here. You. Why don't we start off just uh, learning a little bit about you? Okay. Did you grow up Catholic? Uh, you know what? Uh, I did. I, what a blessing, by Amen. the way. Yeah, what <laughs> yeah. a blessing. I, I grew up not only in a Catholic family, but I grew up in a, a little coal town in the okay. northeast part of Pennsylvania that had. Uh, Let's see, last count, I think when I was growing up, it had eight Catholic churches. So I pretty much couldn't go a block without running into at least one church. <laughs> right. Which was, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, the, the atmosphere within this town, I didn't know it at the time. Sure. But uh, was wonderful in cultivating faith, uh, not only within the parish, but I think the fabric of, of the whole community, and certainly my family. Oh yeah, tell us more about your family. You know, yeah, I'm I had a great family. I guess everybody says that, but uh, no, mom and dad. Don't. My dad was a coal miner. <laughs> yeah. uh, my mom, yeah. homemaker. Um, I was the baby. I guess I better admit that. And uh, how many brothers and sisters? Well, I was the fifth. So okay. I had three older sisters, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, my brother Georgie, the first boy who was born with Down syndrome. Okay. I uh, was born five years before me. Gotcha. So uh, if you can kind of do the math, uh, Georgie was five years older than I. So by the time I got into kindergarten, uh, my sisters were all out of the house and married, and uh, and it was Georgie and me growing up with my mom and dad. Wow. Now, what was that? What was that like, especially uh, having an older brother with Down syndrome? Well, um, gosh, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, my brother Georgie, unwittingly, I think, shaped our family. I mean, uh, when I was uh, finally a priest, you know, uh, my family was known as, you know, they're, uh, they're the family, Georgie is their son. Mm. And so um, I think there was a, a, a great sense of, uh, of compassion and of yearning, and Georgie brought a joy 
and he brought out the best in people. So he did that for us. I probably could talk forever about it. We wouldn't have enough time. But um, I think uh, uh, in general this happened with Georgie, and I think it's very typical with families that have a child with special needs, child with Down syndrome. Um, our priorities change. Hmm. And so I, I just think that I grew up appreciating things more and maybe being a little more outer directed because growing up my mom would say, now don't forget Georgie's coming with you to the football game or, mm. or this or that. And, right. and yeah. that was good for me. Yeah. yeah. He was never a burden. No, no, yeah. actually not. I can, I can tell you just one anecdote. We can, I went to a little Catholic school. We were Slovak. And uh, I, when the school closed, I was in third grade. Uh -huh. Georgie was in seventh. He never went back to formal education. Okay. So when I went to fourth grade, my buddies and me, we would come home and teach George. What, he was learning the timetables, and he was learning whatever we learned. We just thought that was the, the thing to do. And so uh, uh, little did I know he ended up being smarter than I was. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it was a wonderful thing. And uh, when we played ball up at the corner, uh, he, he didn't have... He ended up being a very good basketball player, but he, he didn't have coordination to swing a bat, so the ball would have to be rolled in oh, I see. for him, yeah. and he hit. Yeah. Uh, the, the community adjusted and was enriched. Yeah, all the people that I've known who have uh, special needs children uh, uniformly insist that it was always a blessing and enrichment. I mean, yeah. there wasn't anything uh, inconvenient or unwelcome yeah. about it, it's the child. Not, it's not to say that there was not burden, because I think when I later talked about with my parents, you know, they didn't know that one of the special things God would ask them to do would be to have a child right. with special needs. Yeah. And they didn't, I guess if they were asked, are you prepared to do this? They may not have signed the dotted line. but. Uh, gradually God has a way of forming us and shaping us and yeah. it Georgie brought out the best in us right yeah you know when you have a, a, f a family with love and the Catholic faith I have seen this on other you know in other examples too where those kinds of inconveniences or what the world would describe as burdens really become occasions as you were describing for pulling kids out of themselves for just making it so that sacrifice is sort of the fabric of life. Yeah, I, I think family was so foundational, you didn't consider options. I mean, right. you weren't thinking, <laughs> right. well, what are my options? So you say, well, wait a reality. minute, this is our family. I mean, <laughs> what, right. what, what are you right. suggesting I do? <laughs> kind yeah. of a thing. So yeah. it was it's so very basic. And um, I don't want to paint the picture. My dad uh, didn't always go to church when we were first growing up. Uh, uh, but uh, he was the perfect father because of Georgie, you know. I got to go fishing with him too, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So it was, uh, it was wonderful. They have this uh, amazing capacity, I, I think, to uh, inspire love and to receive love and to dispense it as well, unconditional You know, uh, Regis, I think you're right. You're right. I might, uh, uh, I know we don't necessarily want to fast forward, but my dad died in 77, my mom died in 89, and at that time, I had worked uh, with uh, the Bishop, Bishop Welsh at that time, I said, you know, I'd love to become a pastor if I could, because I'd, like, I'd like to have Georgie come with me, and so, long story short, Georgie moved into the rectory in 89, and the rectory became a home. Hmm. I see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was fascinating. 
what happened there. I thought no other priest would ever want to live with us because <laughs> I didn't want to bur really right. burden, yeah. uh, burden them with, with family, etc. And uh, our rectory became among the most popular in the whole diocese. Um, people would say to me when I was going on vacation, they'd say, Father, you know, we're going to miss you, but we're really going to miss Georgie. Oh, I <laughs> you know? So, so there, was, there was that sense. It, it was really beautiful. I think it was a, it, as I said, I think a rectory became a family. Right. A what, whatever happened to him? Well, George, Georgie, uh, I got changed to a, a larger parish, and he and I moved together in, eight, in 96. Then when I became bishop, I, I joked with the people in Knoxville. I said, you know, this is a package deal. And I, when the Holy Father assigned me, right. would you just assume that he also assigned him? And yep. so uh, we moved to Knoxville, and he lived. Uh, George worked uh, with the maintenance crew, and he worked when he, when he was uh, in the rectory with me at the parish just the same way. His last year, I don't know if you know this, Georgie turned 60. Uh, late 50s, it's uh, highly likely that elements of Alzheimer's will, will show. Oh, oh, I and so this happened in the case with my brother George. So uh, I guess he, he died in, in 2002. I was a bishop two years. The last year he was in a nursing home. I see. And um, maybe I'm talking too much on this. No, but, no, oh, but, no. Uh, I experienced the, uh, what many families experience right before we knew it was best for him to be in a nursing home. I felt, and he did too, that helplessness where I'm trying to go to confirm kids and right. Georgie needs to go to the bathroom. I hate to be so graphic. And we're, right. we're right. It, it was very, very uh, stressful. Yeah. And then when the sisters, the Mercy sisters, I'll never forget them, they, they allowed George to come to a nursing home that they had. I was able to visit George every day. He was happier. I was happier. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a blessed year. And then uh, the Lord uh, took George... Uh, late January yeah. 2002. You know, if more people evinced uh, this kind of devotion uh, to their siblings, uh, we would hardly need to institutionalize, much less warehouse yeah, and you know, these special I, people. In mm. some ways, Regis probably, Georgie fiercely defended the fact that he was the big brother. <laughs> so I mean, oh, I see. Yeah. He, he would, you know, he would be very clear on saying who's in right. charge here, and and so and and it was true in many ways. He did yeah. set many of the tones. I yeah. I now look back on it and I, right. see, I see his influence even maybe on certain mannerisms or characteristics or priorities in my own life. Yeah. It's beautiful and inspiring to see how the faith is lived out in a way that goes miles beyond doctrine, as important as doctrine is, you know. Right. But yeah. the, the life of Christ, the, the, the life of sacrifice, and enjoying each other, including the burdens. I mean, that's You know, just, uh, the doctrine, uh, uh, we need to put on a face yeah. to the life of Christ. And it, you, can't, you can't theoretically talk about joy but you can talk about the joy that comes from being with another person. And families, even in the midst of all their difficulties that they might be challenged, if they don't take time, and Pope Francis, I think, gets this very well and he preaches it, uh, today is the time to be joyful right. and to appreciate what right. you have. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the, uh, the most vivid memories I have is the year I spent uh, in Vietnam, oh. in Saigon, and I fell in with this old Jesuit priest who was the chaplain to uh, the American community in Saigon. And every Sunday, I would tag along uh, for the big mass at the cathedral. But before we got 
from the Jeep uh, to the vestibule. We had to wade literally through this great sea of refugees, uh-huh. widows and cripples. And he taught me a lesson. He said, here is the body of Christ. Wow. And if we don't negotiate this mm. with love, I've no business confecting the Eucharist. Wow, beautiful. And that was an impression that, that has uh, remained you know what? That's, that's ineffaceable. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, uh, I just, uh, January of, of, se- of 17, I, I was in Vietnam. And uh, in fact, uh, I think Saigon, uh, Ho Chi Minh City now, uh, has I think 12 million people and, and 6 million uh, mopeds. So I mean, it's, uh, you, you negotiate many things as you're going through the city. But, but I think you're, you're absolutely right that, uh, that it is, uh, there's something beautiful about not seeing a mass of humanity, but seeing right. people one at a time. Yeah. Mother Teresa, didn't she get that? I yeah. mean, that was really the charism that she yeah. said, I see people one at a time. Right. And that great story about Lawrence, the uh, the deacon of Rome, who was accosted right. by the emperor, who demanded oh, to see the, the treasures, treasures yeah, right. of the church. Give me 24 hours, uh, emperor, and I'll produce them. Yeah. And the next day, all the poor of the city show up. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I think he was shortly thereafter barbecued, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, nevertheless, you, you would have to end that story. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the vision. But, ne- but, but, we nev- need but to nevertheless, have. you're 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 absolutely right about uh, about the gift that we have of the people that God places in our lives. Right. I think that's probably the case. How, how terrible we would be if we had to handpick right. all the people who are in our lives, and right. and there's an adventure. Yeah, yeah. And I, of course, I guess every family begins that because we don't necessarily handpick our family yeah. members. So that's a beautiful Or thing. if you admit only those who are up to scratch. Uh, that's right. There wouldn't be much. That's right. So I'm curious, <laughs> in what context did your sense of vocation arise? Yeah. Good question, yeah. Um, well, I can trace it to a couple of things. First of all, uh, you probably can tell that the uh, relationship with my brother Georgie was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, I was in high school in 10th grade and began to go, it was a Catholic school. I was the only one who went to Catholic high school in my family. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to go to a chapel. And I think you had the choice, for study hall or chapel, and I guess it was a good alternative at the time. <laughs> but but I, I felt drawn. And it was, it was a sophomore year, we were taking tests on college boards. And career... Um, wasn't exciting me, and mm. so I, I, I think the call to be a priest was good. My sister Rose, who was a saint, um, she, uh, she gave me uh, for Christmas when I was in seventh grade a book called St. Dominic and the Holy Rosary. Oh. And I didn't know yeah. it at the time, but re- I still have it. It's, I should get it rebound. It's, uh, it, it was so touching. I didn't know at the time, but I think that influenced sure. me. But the first time uh, that I really started to think, yeah, I wonder if God's calling me to be a priest, uh, was in 10th grade. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Well, it's a wonder you didn't become a Dominican. <laughs> yes, n- no Dominicans ever have said that. <laughs> However, you're right. I wondered about that too. Right, yeah. But I, 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 we, and, and of course, Louisville is the oh, that's with, right. with St. Yeah. Rose, and Springfield is the birthplace right. in the United yeah. States of the Dominicans. So I guess that's my reward, which is great. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it reminds me of the words of uh, Paul VI that modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. Ah. 
and teachers only if they're witnesses. Ah. It's a real joy to be able uh, to hear you so comfortably share your witness. I'm sure you do this from the pulpit. I'm sure you do this in the relationship of many in your diocese. And as we look forward to talking more about the new evangelization, it's going to be that witness that we need to be focused on and be able to share joyfully with others. It's not a theory. Uh, it's a life. So we do hope that you will stay with us for our next segment of Franciscan University Presents. Love is shown by little things, by attention to small daily signs which make us feel at home. Faith grows when it is lived and shaped by love. That is why our families, our homes, are true domestic churches. They are the right place for faith to become life and life to grow in faith. Pope Francis speaking at the World Meeting of Families 2015, Philadelphia. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the many different facets of the new evangelization with our guest, Most Reverend Joseph Kurtz, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Louisville, Kentucky. And we had such a wonderful conversation about your family. In light of the new evangelization, what role do you think the family plays in that? Mm. A great question, Bob. The, um, well, I, I guess the first thing I got to say is that I, I think of what St. John Paul II said that our civilization passes through the family. <laughs> and uh, that sounds awfully monumental, uh, especially when we know that families, it's too long not to be yourself. I mean, <laughs> it's a whole life. Right. So, so families really have to be themselves and I guess have to, have to kind of trust that, that, that God has put them together for a reason and um, in the midst of the joys and the sufferings that they go through, uh, to know that there's a public dimension mm. to what they do. I think I said in the earlier point that, that later in life, my parents be became known as, oh, they're, they're the couple, right. that, that, that Georgie's uh, one of their sons. Oh, yeah. And there was kind of a public dimension. I didn't call it public at the time, but as I got studying sociology and, and all the other things, theology that we were dealing with, I thought, wow. Um, there is a, a public witness that has to be kind of what you do when you don't think anybody's looking. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it can't be false. People can see through that. So um, there can't be that false joy. But simply to be able to, to serve, enjoy one another's company, I guess give attention to one another, probably the biggest thing that is a problem today is we don't give undivided attention to people. And, uh, and that family, if they just go at it and be a family and come together and uh, do what they think God's calling them to do, others are watching. Right. Yes. And, and this, I think, has a, a specifically Christian uh, uh, spin because uh, once the incarnation 
took place. A, a neutral stance in the public life became impossible. Ah, boy, that's beautiful. I mean, everything impacts uh, yeah. uh, the public life, and, and Christ enters into everything. He permeates everything. So the witness of family life cannot be strictly, uh, exclusively private. Yeah. I, I like that phrase, what, what you do when, when you think nobody's watching. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, actually, I, I, I've used that. Somebody said it. Um, I've stole it from somebody. Uh, maybe, maybe you, Scott, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, that it says a good character is doing the right thing when you think no one's looking. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I, I would also say that usually when I talk about religious liberty, I know we'll talk about that a little later, is I say it's not just about me having the space to practice my faith, but faith actually enriches public life. Right. And I think you're absolutely right that, that when we look at family life, and all we have to think is ourselves, yeah. how we're impressed by certain neighbors, right. how we yeah. say, gee, gee I'd, like, I'd, love to, I'd love to be in their family. I like to go and visit them. It's just something, there's something magnetic about it, right. something beautiful. Right. Um, I guess Dickens with the Christmas story probably caught that. Yeah. And um, I think that's what we're talking about. It's not the, the, the proclamation of the gospel is not an additional thing that people right. do right. to their family. It's, it's, it's within what they do with the family to know what a blessing it is that God places other people to watch what they're doing, right, yeah. and as they do, to be inspired. You know, once you see that it really is what John Paul called the gospel of the family, ah. that we're not just criminals who are pardoned, patients who are healed, but prodigal sons and daughters who are brought home. That reconciliation that brings about an adoption, a new birth, you know, these aren't just quaint metaphors. Right. They, they take lofty doctrine and bring it right down so that when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us in the holy family of Nazareth, that isn't just some receptacle that holds him for a few decades. Now, that is the, the context in which salvation is manifested wow. in the most concrete and interpersonal ways wow. so that suddenly every single little nitty-gritty detail of, of, of everyday life is, is just charged with, with love, with wow. truth, with, with faith, you know. And, and I think that's what we have to recognize, that you know, the Catholic Church really does have a distinctive approach to salvation, which is so much more than what we're saved from, it's what we're saved for. And it's not just a divine family, a divine father. And it really is going home and living this out and allowing it to pervade our conversations. Yeah, and no, throwing Frisbee as much as praying the rosary. No, you know? no, absolutely. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I, I like the way Pope Francis talks about a parish being a family of families. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that... That, that says it very well, and if we're not nurturing that family at home, the domestic church, yeah. uh, how do we expect at the Eucharist to, to, to have the full impact of the grace of Christ to enrich us? Well, you know, yeah. it, it isn't accidental that, that Christ, before he fashioned a church, a body, came out of a family. Mm. He had his own family. Mm. Uh, and the church, while she may be the prolongation of Christ, his presence, his power in time and space, families are the extension of the church, uh, the life of the church. I mean, the church would look pretty uh, threadbare if there weren't families. Uh, and, and when you incarnate that, when you give it flesh and bones, you call that culture. Mm -hmm. You export this ethos to the public life, and, and you sort of... Uh, Percolate everything Christian uh, in that larger dimension so that everything becomes a kind of conspiracy to make it easier for men and women to be good. 
to get you know, safely and, home. And, and I'll say another thing, you know, the church's teachings, we just, uh, I just gave a, a homily not very many months ago about humani vitae, is, is we're talking about uh, the unitive and procreative dimensions. Yeah. Uh, we know that there are many heroic families where there's a single parent, and God bless us, how good they are. But every single parent I've ever talked to said, well, I want my son or daughter to have the benefit of, of right. having a loving husband or a loving wife and having children. Yeah. And so we should never stop in, in challenging that. So there's, there's kind of in me uh, that double desire, one, to say, you know, the family you're in is the family God wants you to be in, and, right. and please say thank you every night yeah. for that family, but also, how important it is for, for husbands and wives to love one another, right. to, to beget children, and then to raise the children they beget. And, right. and that is not just an ideal. That's a, that's a beautiful thing that we need as a church to foster. Yeah, the, the, the poet uh, Robert Frost uh, famously said that home is the place where when you get there, they have to take you. Yes, <laughs> yes, beautiful. And you don't have to prove yourself. That's beautiful. It's in virtue of your being. You belong. What you do. Yeah, yeah, you belong. How might we as a church, and maybe you can talk about in your own diocese or in your own ministry, uh, you know, having the church be able to help families. Uh, you think of the beginning of the family, which is preparing a couple for marriage. Right. Uh, you think about them welcoming life in, preparing them for baptism. What are, what are I think, some I th ways? I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. You mentioned a number of them. We can never tire of the way in which we see uh, the preparation for the, of, of a couple for marriage, which of course begins in kindergarten. Uh, we can never forget that, that uh, one of the biggest claims on us is once married, we forget them. <laughs> and so that ongoing formation, uh, one of the things that, that I was pleased with in 2008, Father Frank Brett, God rest him, uh, he called me. I was just in Knox, er, just left Knoxville and I was just appointed to uh, Louisville. He said, uh, Archbishop, he said, there's no blessing for a, a child in the womb. I said, Frank, you know, you, I've got to show you, it's, there's, there's a blessing. <laughs> well, he was right. <laughs> I, went through, I went through everything, so I was on the pro-life committee for the USCCB, and I introduced it, and long and short of it, that blessing of the child in the womb, I said, is a moment of the announcement of the gospel. It's, there's no preparation necessary. Hmm. It's kind of pre-evangelization. Yeah. It's, it's that, that new life that is now being blessed, bringing uh, a mother and a father together. Mm -hmm. And that has been a wonderful way. And I, uh, when we had the Synod on New Evangelization, my intervention was actually talking about the blessing of the child in the womb as a first step in deepening someone and leading that family toward the sacrament of baptism. Oh. So I think, I think there's, there's many ways we can talk about that, Bob. I, yeah. I think uh, I would love to, to hear the creativity of pastors and people involved in family ministry who are saying, well, let me tell you what we're doing in right. our parish. I think we need to do more of that, yeah. telling stories. I try to do that at our priest council meeting about what does it mean to bring a pastoral heart to that. Well, and I love the idea that you're talking about uh, the, the first step yeah. to baptism because I think, sadly, uh, the church in the United States has suffered from a cultural assumption that, well, they'll certainly get married in the church uh, when they get older. Oh, well, when they have kids... They'll come back. They'll come right. back. And, and we've been laboring, I think, as statistics have shown, under this lie that, well, even if they leave, 
they'll come back and we're not seeing them come back. And I no. think a, a moment like that is no, acknowledging that, that, that outreach. Every, path. I say everybody has an ant. Hmm. And that ant can always say, you know, uh, you have a child in the womb. Uh, I want to make sure that you, you receive a blessing. Oh, what does that mean? And then this conversation begins, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Catasauqua uh, as a pastor my first time in 1988, and we had a family with a lot of starter homes, etc. So one of the things we began was, sac was sacramental preparation teams for, for baptism. Five sessions. And people came to them because, especially if it was their first child, they were desperate. Right. <laughs> they wanted whatever help and support they could get. Right. But you know what else happened? The team of six couples that were part of helping prepare that, they became a support group for one another. Hmm. It, yeah. th there's no better way to, to receive support than to be doing something together for someone else. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened with, and, and I think, so that's another aspect of, of preparation when a couple is willing to go out and help another family with a baptism, that's enriching yeah. that helping couple too. You know, I have a friend, Father Jay, who's the chaplain for the St. Paul Center, and he has this uh, deal for his parish called the Renew the I Do. Oh. And what it really does, it's marriage mentoring. So you get older couples with kids who are mentoring, who are role modeling, uh, what it, especially for parents who are first-time parents, wow. you know. And uh, they don't just have classes. They have instruction, that sort of thing. But they also go to PNC Park and watch the Pirates, you know. So they just, they, just, they just join and accompany uh, Pope, right. Pope Francis's word. So what is it called? Renew the Renew I Do. Renew the I Do. Oh, I like <laughs> and it's, just, it's so practical, and yet it's so profoundly grounded in this idea that, you know, discipleship. You know, I want to see men who have gone before me as husbands, as fathers, who have weathered the storms and have come out stronger, maybe even holier, yeah. and then turn around and do that as well. Archbishop, this, this image, uh, I can't get it out of my head, of Which the one? blessing conferred upon the, the pre-born child. Yes. And it's really quite beautiful. It is beautiful. Uh, there's a, a line in Father Peter Cameron, his book on the Blessed Mother, in which he describes her movement from uh, the Annunciation to the Visitation up into the hill country mm -hmm. as the first Corpus Christi procession. Oh, wow. And, and if beautiful. you accept the truth of creation as the beginning of the Imago Dei, uh, embedded in that womb, then that child is an image of God. Yeah. Uh, and you parade that child even before his baptism. He's precious. He's sacred, this blazing sacramental being. Well, and beautiful. by drawing attention to that, I think it's a way of shoring up the sanctity of life. Regis, we did a little booklet with our Sunday visitor, uh, uh, Monsignor Bransfield, the Bishop's Conference, and I did it on the, on the uh, blessing of the child in the womb and uh, focused it around the mystery of the visitation. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. The you sharing know, of joy. Right. You know, yeah. my daughter just suffered a miscarriage, ah. and it was really difficult, of course, you know. But I just think that if we, I didn't know about this prayer, this wow. blessing. This needs to be really well circulated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially when you have a problem pregnancy. Mm. Um, and you can't you know, necessarily baptize the little one. Absolutely. You know? And there have been blessings. Deep consolation. There have been blessings, but it never was an official blessing of the church. So we got, right. it became a part of the, the book of blessings whenever it's going to be republished. I don't know when it's going to be, <laughs> but, but it's going to be included. Because this, this was approved in Rome in 2011. Guess what day? 
uh, December 8th. Uh -huh. oh. And I assume that's probably online for those that it are is. home that maybe it grandparents is. or it is. uncles Blessing of a Child in the Womb. So they can that little booklet Google that I did say. also is online. So uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's I shouldn't be uh, promoting that. Yeah, yeah no, it's, right totally, it's totally all right. Well, we'll be right back with more of Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. The church welcomes with joy and compassion the mothers who, recognizing that all life is a gift from God, come to the church seeking a blessing for their unborn child. Such a blessing sustains the parents by imparting grace and comfort in time of concern and need, unites the parish in prayer for the unborn child, and fosters respect for human life within society. From the introduction to the right for the blessing of a child in the womb. You don't have to trade top-flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real-world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This show is recorded in the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment, and my colleagues in the Theology Department, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, are contributing to our discussion with Archbishop Joseph Kurtz on the many facets of the new evangelization. We said earlier in your bio, in 2017, you were elected, you're the chairman of the Committee on Religious Freedom. Yeah. And do you think people understand what that, or many Americans, many Catholics really understand what is meant when we say religious freedom? Well, uh, or many bishops. Bob, Bob, <laughs> a very good point. I, I think that some people will say, I don't know what you mean. Other people will say, well, where's the problem? Hmm. And so I think what we're finding with religious freedom, of course, is our first freedom. We said earlier, I think in the first segment, we talked about the fact that, that faith uh, actually enriches public life. So, right. so faith and the public square go together. We can't say, well, this is my private belief. Yeah. Um, I think many people have false understandings. They think, well, gee, if I can't impose something on others, which of course we, we don't want, does that mean I can't even propose? Right, yeah. And so I think what we're finding in much of the research is, in general, people who are 60 years of age and older, even 70 like I am, um, kind of get it. They see that, that we sometimes are being bullied mm. within our own society in, in, in being shouted down on, on le legitimate things in passing on our faith, in, in the way in which our, our institutions, whether it be Catholic charities, our Catholic schools, or, or uh, other public events are, are done. Uh, but we're also finding that, that people who are younger don't always understand. And so I presented um, a presentation to our bishops at the June meeting that we had in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And in it, I focused on the work of this committee that is, mm -hmm. is a, a standing committee. Archbishop Laurie, for six years, was the chair of the ad hoc committee. He did yeoman's work, and guess who was the first consultant I got? He's on the committee. <laughs> so so uh, we have a number of people, but we're focusing especially on the kind of language that we're using. 
Sure. Because there are certain things that people do get. Uh, people don't want someone to be forced. That's a basic thing. And so one of the things we're going to need to do is, and we're hoping on it with religious liberty, is showing how some people are being forced not to, for example, a school forced not to be consistent with our moral mission and teachings. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the other thing that I think people are, are saying that they do get is they understand when you put a face to the situation. That's why I think people didn't understand the HHS mandate and contraception and all the rest, but they understood the little sisters of exactly. the poor. And they said, hey, they don't want to sue people. <laughs> well, what's, what's this about? Uh, the same was true when we when we've pushed, and not successfully yet, for the uh, Conscience Protection Act for nurses hmm. and doctors, uh, nurses being told, uh, you either take part in this abortion procedure or you're going to lose your job. And I think that's great. You know, you're talking about a younger generation not understanding this language. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the big virtues of young people is tolerance. And Absolutely. And I put that in quotes because it's a misunderstood virtue, but it's, it's a huge thing with millennials, this idea that, um, you know, I'm supposed to be tolerant of what other people believe and how might you address that kind it of thing? It is, it is, and it's, you? well, first of all, you, you, you can't shout down people, so you do have to listen to what people are saying. But one of the most important things is to begin to say, now let's examine that a little more. Are we being a little selective mm. when we say tolerate? So I think when we, it, I think what we're seeing with the a religious, uh, the Committee on Religious Liberty is that Rather than talk specifically about religious liberty in the abstract, let's talk about very, very specific situations. Mm. So we say, well, if you place your child in Catholic school, um, do you want the faith to be passed on to them? They say, yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, do. Do you want people to just do it with the, what they say or with the way they live their lives? They say, no, we want our teachers to consistently witness to our faith. So we need to slow the process down and show people why there are issues that we need to stick up for. Um, the, the Child Welfare Ex uh, Inclusion Act says that, that there is such a, a dramatic need for foster homes and adoptive homes that we cannot, as a society, begin to exclude, let's say, for example, Catholic charities, because there are people who are coming to Catholic charities, they want our values, mm. they, they want uh, to stand with uh, the teachings of the church and Catholic charities, thank God, want to be integral to the life and mission of our church. So we're, we're, we're trying to find ways, really, I would say, to reason with people. And, and I think a word that we're using is, let's make space. Yeah. Let's make room for people, even people who disagree. Right. Let's make room for Catholic charities to be able to provide service in a way that's integral with our beliefs in family life. Yeah. But to, uh, to justify that sort of space, you have to make good arguments. Yeah. And I think there's a, a widespread disconnect uh, among people between facts and values. Uh, for example, nobody disputes the sum of two plus two. I mean, that's an axiom of arithmetic, and you wouldn't hire somebody to teach math if they couldn't add. 
But the sum of 2,000 years of moral experience ah. has become the very bone of contention because that's in the realm of values. It's subjective. We, we need to overcome that artificial uh, uh, distinction because it's not real. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a very good point. At the same point. time, I think we can see a narrowing or a constriction of the understanding of religious freedom, especially on the part of younger people, that they think, well, what's the problem? Because you're free to go to church ah. on Sunday. And that's not always true in other countries. And so what more freedom do you want? Well, what we're really asking for is to be free to express our faith in the public square. But because the public square has also been constricted to being the political square, and the political is now the secular, and the secular celebrates only one kind of diversity yeah. that, that really is intent upon, at times at least, excluding fidelity. Even when we can advance arguments based on natural reason, natural law to show that marriage is a natural institution long before it's elevated to a sacrament. I mean, we've got to get back to the basics I think you're in right, our Scott. public discourse. I think, and, and uh, you brought up a very good point, too. One of the things we have to begin to say is when we look throughout the world, there are objectively horrendous things right. happening. That's why our committee uh, on religious liberty, uh, Archbishop Broglio, who's the chair of uh, International Justice and Peace, is a member. Mm. Uh, precisely because we need to say, listen, the things that we take for granted in the United States are not always happening elsewhere, and we need to stand with people who, who can't go to church right. or who are being told, as, as I read not all that long ago, you can come, but you can't bring your children. Right. Yep. And so, in China and, and Sharia. Exactly, exactly. Now, having said that, I think we can also say that, you know, the, 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 uh, the frog did boil one degree at a time. Yeah. And, and uh, these are things that we have to be very aware and, and susceptible with. And th the notion that we talk only about a narrow freedom to worship yeah. is something that uh, we can't live with because we're called as Christians to witness to right. our faith. That's right. I think we can say, however, and this gets back to what Regis said, uh, we do have to make arguments, we have to propose, we have to persuade, and that's the greatness of our nation. Yeah. This is why I think we have Supreme Court decisions that, that the bishops are intent in being involved in. Yeah. We have uh, a place to be able to make these arguments, and I would also say the court of public opinion, which is what you're raising. Um, I think people are listening, and I think we need some voices, and maybe even um, people, uh, younger people, who are getting up and saying, listen, I get it. Right. Here's, I think we need some faces to people who say, I understand. Well, and it, to develop not. new rhetorical strategies, yeah. new approaches, Absolutely. because the things that worked 20 years ago they don't have the same effect. Absolutely. I mean, what, what are the marching orders of the Christian uh, thing? It's not being a fundamentalist or it's not an exercise in bigotry to remind people that Jesus pretty emphatically said, without me, you can do nothing. Yeah. Is that a political statement? It does have political implications. Nothing is off limits to God. Grace can penetrate anything. If it's natural, it ought to be perfected. Yeah. Uh, doesn't the Pope speak about polite persecution? I mean, we're not thrown in jail because we want to go to Mass, but if we want to take the message of the Gospel and somehow apply it, graft it onto the institutions of the public life, that's considered a stretch. Yeah. That's some well, of well, I, I agree with you, and, and I think our, our committee is, is basically saying, boy, we value in situations where someone 
shows how they're witnessing and serving others in a way that has integrity of faith yeah. and that the average person would say, you know, we don't want to lose that. Yeah. So we need true stories of things that are not aggressive and are not attempting to, to force people to do something, but we also need the courageous voice yeah. when someone, why would we not want to defend? Yeah. That's why uh, the, the week that we just had, a week of religious freedom at the end of June, uh, each day we looked at education, we looked at migration services, uh, we looked at health care, at some of the areas that we've been, international justice. So each of the seven days had a particular focal point. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the average person needs, well, we need not only to pray, but we need to educate ourselves too yeah. to some of the realities. Right. Yeah. Well, that frog uh, that you're talking Oh, yeah. You, I, I said it so quickly, but you're right. You remember the frog one degree at a time. I mean, it's a, it's a sad commentary, I, I think, on the state of the culture that to draw attention to the integrity of life in the womb, you know, the sanctity of unborn children, that's considered a prophetic message. I mean, it's really pretty commonplace. This is a life, and it ought to be protected. Yeah. But that, that's considered really pretty provocative. Yeah. How but, do you, yeah, I'm sorry, on. but I will say one other thing. Uh, are you not impressed when you go to a Right to Life march? The first letter to the editor yeah. that I ever wrote, I was ordained in 1972, was in January of 1973 mm -hmm. in Bethlehem. Yeah. Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. Right. I have been impressed by the civility, yeah. uh, the kindness, even though sometimes you say, well, there's this shouting person pictured in the newspaper. That's not been my experience. My experience has been people who are pro-life tend to be the most generous, serving right. people yeah. with others. And I think the majority of people are seeing that. That's why I think uh, the statistics are showing that the majority in the United States now yeah. uh, understand the sanctity of human life. But we need to be, a, we can't stop that message right. because I think sometimes it's being distorted in some yeah, fashion. Yeah. Well, certainly it becomes political and in our society today there's so much shouting and divisiveness over political. People want to be religious, but anything that seems political and it goes down to that you know, misunderstanding of, well, it's the separation of church and state. And I, again, I see a lot of young people with that attitude of, well, I don't want to make a political statement. Right, yeah. And they don't realize that there's really no way to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ yeah. and not make it political in, in the positive sense. And I'm just wondering in terms of you know, the USCCB's work with the Supreme Court sure. and of course this committee, maybe some tips or some insight on how might we, in the right sense of politics, be able to advocate for religious freedom. That doesn't feel like we're grandstanding sure. for a candidate. Sure. Well, we, well, one of the first things we should do is I, I really do think that the word political has been co-opted. And so I'm not sure that is the right word to use. I think we need to begin to let people say, you know, because you do something publicly, you're not imposing it on others, mm. but you're proposing it in rational dialogue. Right. That is not automatically a political opinion. It's first, and, and this is where our Catholic theology comes in, it's a desire to promote the common good. Yeah. It's saying, I'd love to live in a little circle of my own, however, 
I'm called to serve everybody. I, I, want, I want to go to heaven, but I want others to come with me. I, mean, I, 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 I want to invite others. And I think <clears throat> that effort of being able not to be intimidated, but, but to find ways courageously to express and share our opinions, it begins in family, it begins with people close to us, but I think it also begins with associations. I think one of the great things de Tocqueville said, what's one of the great things about the United States of America? We have had strong associations, right. whether it's church affiliated or civic affiliated. And for people to be able to associate themselves with others so that uh, they can deepen their convictions and not lose their passion. Hmm. Um, one of the things that young people, I think, can get is the fact that you say, you don't want to reduce society to the common denominator. You don't want people to lose the passion that they bring. If that were the case, we wouldn't have the United States of America. Right. We, and that's where voices of faith have always sought to publicly not impose on others. We don't live in a nation that puts you in jail if you don't believe what I believe, but rather that allows us to proclaim. And I, I, I think the earlier segment we gave was also talking about the Absolutely. way you do that in family. Absolutely. Well, we will be back with some final thoughts on all of this, so please stay tuned. Religious freedom remains one of America's most precious possessions. And, as my brothers, the United States bishops, have reminded us, all are called to be vigilant, precisely as good citizens, to preserve and defend that freedom from everything that would threaten or compromise it. Pope Francis speaking at the White House, Washington, D.C., September 23, 2015. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France and Italy, and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, would you start us off yeah, with some no, final thoughts? To. Uh, one of uh, the developments that uh, I certainly uh, deplore um, in this charged moment of the public life is what appears to be the complete loss, the disappearance of the supernatural mm. uh, as a domain of life that's politically significant. Uh, and what I mean by that is, for example, the opposition to genocide, uh, the gassing of Jews. The deepest argument against that is theological. Here are children of God, children of the book, of the promise. We owe them reverence. We're unborn children in the womb. That reverence ought to be enshrined politically uh, in the Constitution so that they enjoy the same civil liberties as everybody else. And the fact that we don't uh, perceive it in that way suggests a condition of barbarism. I mean, not, not to put uh, uh, too heavy a face on it, but we're descending into a state of barbarism, which is the absence of any standard to which people have 
routine appeal. You know, what does it mean to be human? Well, whatever you think, you know, whatever floats your boat, I do it my way. This unbridled freedom, I, I think, is a ticket to the kind of tyranny that more and more will oppress the people of God. And I'm so grateful, Archbishop, that, that you're in a position where you're able to draw attention to the great resistance and to remind us of those transcendent truths about the human person, beginning with your brother Georgie. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Scott. You know, as I reflect on the three segments previous to this, you know, I, I, it just brings me back to the basics. Family, new evangelization, and religious liberty. You know, we all have family. Even if we're alone, we have the parish, which ought to have that family spirit. But most of us do find ourselves in homes with kids, you know, and it seems to me that prayer uh, is such an important component. The family rosary, you know, going to Mass together, scheduling confession on a Saturday, these sorts of things ought to be revived if they're not put in place. But I would also say that evangelization is a part of the family life too. I mean, play and pray, as Kimberly would say. Uh, we want to throw the frisbee as well as pull out the rosary. But I, I think it's important for us to instill in our kids a sense of social responsibility, social action, you know, and uh, here in the little town of Steubenville, Ohio, I think it, it's much easier than it might be in Manhattan. Uh, but at the same time, I remember a time a couple of years ago when we prayed a family rosary, and we specifically dedicated one decade to this little town of Steubenville, oh. at the end of which, Kimberly and I were talking about the mayoral race that was coming up that year. And just on a kind of inspired impulse, uh, we called a fellow who had grown up in this town. He was 70 years old, a devout Catholic, and just well-liked by everybody. And we asked him if he would consider running for mayor. <laughs> and he was taken by surprise. He said, I'll think about it. He prayed about it. And a sign came to him a few days later that he was to run. And he ran, and he is now our mayor. Oh, wow. And I think he is just a great public witness without ever talking about his faith, although we now have prayer before our city council meetings and things like this. But, I mean, the more it pervades, the supernatural can permeate the social life in a very, very natural way. And I think we can talk about religious liberty, but I think the more we exercise it in a, in a winsome way, I think the more natural it becomes like, yes, this isn't just part of what it means to be an American. This is what it means to be human. Yeah. And I thank you for bearing witness to that. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Scott. And Regis, you know, uh, you, you make it easy for me to summarize because uh, many of the things you said are, are things that have touched my heart. Um, the reverence for life. And, and not just life in general, but the people that God places in our lives. And I think we talked about family. And I often talk in confirmations and other places that we don't tell stories enough today. We don't tell people about what it was like for us growing up and to tell our stories. We need to do that. And we need to also know that our, our family circle should not be so tight that we don't look at the community. That's why I love what you said about uh, praying for uh, the, the citizens of the of this, uh, city of Steubenville and for us to look at the United States. And I think to myself, we should be calling forth young people to say, you may be called to be a priest, you may be called to make a difference in the secular order. Are they vocation? Both of them are vocations. And religious freedom will only be preserved when we not simply exercise it ourselves, but find a way to preserve it for someone else, for our neighbor. And that's what I think the Bishop's Conference is about, and I hope that's what uh, each parish and each family 
has a dimension to say, well, we're also about preserving religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. And hopefully that's a grace that might come of this. You know, God can bring good out of evil. I think our religious freedom is something we take for granted so often, particularly for a younger generation. You know, a great way to get them to do something is say, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> and, and they'll do the opposite. And they'll do the opposite. <laughs> yes. and, you know, I would say, sadly, so much of our, I think, this vision of religious freedom has been our church not living outside our, our church boundaries, you know? And so it seems easy to take away something that we're not really using. Mm. And so, you know, God, give us the, the grace of the Holy Spirit to, once it gets taken away from us, realize this treasure we have and just to be empowered to live the gospel for young people, for families, of our own personal witness. And again, thank you, Archbishop. This was such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, if you enjoyed today's program and you'd like to learn more, we do have a free handout, uh, threat, Current Threats to Religious Freedom. This is a very informative fact sheet from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's yours for free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on screen in just a moment. I invite you to be a part of Franciscan University and join us in our mission to educate, evangelize, and send forth uh, joyful disciples to restore all things in Christ. And perhaps you know someone who would like to be a part of our academic programs or be a part of our conferences. So much of what we've been talking about here, the new evangelization, uh, religious liberty, um, all of those are, are just so passionate for all of us at Franciscan University. And we certainly want young people to come to our campus so that they can go forward and fight for those freedoms to propose not feeling like they're imposing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Archbishop, would you be so kind as to close us with a blessing? Thanks, Bob. I'd be happy to and honored to let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please bless us. Bless us so that we will never forget that the privilege of religious freedom is a, fr a privilege that we have a responsibility to exercise. Help us to value the gift of family, reverence the people that you have placed in our lives, and seek to protect and defend all human beings so that we might continue to have a robust religious liberty in which our faith and the faith of others enriches the public life that we take for granted. Bless us now as we go our way, and most especially bless the good presence of Franciscan University here in Steubenville. We pray as always through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> to download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.